Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here and moderator of these forums. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. That's the engine that drives these noon forums, which are offered seven times a year, free, open to the public. Palestine and the Arab-Israeli conflict. What issue could be more key, more important to discuss in this setting, more critical regarding not only the future for that cradle of civilization, which is the Middle East, but indeed for the whole civilized world. The voices of conscience to address the issue today in dialogue are two. We have Wolf Blitzer, Washington Bureau Chief of the Jerusalem Post and author of Between Washington and Jerusalem, published in 1985. In 1979, Mr. Blitzer accompanied President Carter to Egypt and Israel in the final round of negotiations which led to the signing of the Camp David Accord. And we have Hatem Husseini, who served for 10 years in the League of Arab States office in Washington and more recently as director of the Palestine Information Office also in Washington. Among other books and articles, he has written Toward Peace in Palestine. Currently, he is a professor at the International Studies Center at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. He was born in Jerusalem. Our two special guests will each make 20-minute presentations. Following that, each will have five to seven minutes to respond to each other. After the responses, we will have the question period as part of this extended forum. Questions will come from the floor via the yellow cards provided and over the phone from the radio audience. Uh, they may call 332-3421, 332-3421. The response period and the question period will be moderated by Mr. Thomas Futak, Assistant Director of the Conflict and Change Center at the University of Minnesota and housed at the Humphrey Institute for Public Affairs. So let us begin this important and I think historic forum. Let us begin by hearing from Mr. Blitzer. Thank you very much for inviting me here this afternoon. Thank you for this nice reception. It's a pleasure to be here. I was just in Israel last week covering the campaign over there. Recent weeks I've been covering the U.S. campaign as well, and I think I have the unique distinction of being the only reporter who in the last several weeks has had a chance to interview not only the labor and Likud leaders in Israel, Yitzhak Shamir and Shimon Peres, but both Vice President Bush and Governor Dukakis here in the United States. So I've had a chance to compare the campaigning, the elections process in both countries. And I must say, uh, 
it's quite interesting to notice how the elections here are focusing in, at least unfortunately in the news media, on rather tangential issues, not really the, the substantive issues that divide, let's say, Bush and Dukakis. Uh, there are all sorts of issues about the ACLU and Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag and things like that, which are important but not necessarily the meat uh, of this campaign. Uh, it's at a relatively high level. You might not think so, but compared to the, uh, the level of the debate in Israel, it's, it's, it's a very high level. <laughs> but at least in Israel, they're arguing over substantive issues. There is a serious debate between the Labor Party in Israel and the Likud Party, and the people of Israel will have a chance to make their views known on November 1st. I'd like to share with you some of my thoughts about what's going on in Israel right now, what the perceptions are in Israel across the board, some of the national consensus ideas. There are uh, differences of opinion, as, as everyone, of, of course, recognizes. But there are some fundamental truths, at least from the Israeli perspective, that are shared across the board. My own sense is that uh, there are some opportunities available now, 40 years after Israel's independence. There are some opportunities, and I may be overly optimistic, but I look at the situation from this overall historic standpoint, and I see some potential there. I hope it is exploited. Let me go back 11 years to 1977. June of 1977, Menachem Begin had just taken office as Prime Minister of Israel, a hardliner, a Likud leader, of course, formed a Likud-led coalition. This was several months before Anwar Sadat of Egypt excited all of us by announcing his readiness to go to Jerusalem to address the Knesset to make peace with Israel. That summer, I was in Israel, and I remember very vividly Menachem Begin, having just taken office, Prime Minister, going to Yamit, which was a town in northern Sinai along the Mediterranean, beautiful town that Israel had established after the 1967 war. Went to Yamit, and he gathered the people of Yamit there in the center of the town, had a pep talk for him. It was filmed. It was aired on Israel television, the news program, later that evening. I watched it on TV in Jerusalem. Begin gathered the people of Yamit, and he said to them, Yamit is ours. We will never leave Yamit. In fact, when I retire from office, Aliza, his late wife, and I are going to buy a plot of land here in Yamit, build a home here. This is where I'm going to write my memoirs. People say Israel is going to withdraw from this town. Forget it. Yamit is Tel Aviv. There is no difference. That was in the summer of 1977. A few months later, in November of 1977, Sadat came to Jerusalem, the leader of the largest Arab country, 45 or 50 million people, addressed the Knesset. 16 months of direct negotiations developed, difficult negotiations, negotiations involving the United States as the mediator, Camp David, in September of 1978, finally culminating in the signing of the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt in March of 1979 in Washington. I covered all of those negotiations. In the process, Israel not only withdrew from Yamit, 
it withdrew from some 20 other settlements in Sinai, returned all of Sinai, in fact, including Etam and Etzion, two of the finest tactical fighter air bases in the world. I had visited those air bases on a few occasions. Returned oil fields in the Gulf of Suez and elsewhere in Sinai, which would have made Israel energy independent if she would have kept on, held on to those oil fields. Returned Sharm el-Sheikh, the southernmost tip of Sinai. Uh, I think it's fair to say Israel made far-reaching concessions, difficult, painful concessions, the strategic depth that Sinai afforded Israel. Why? Because the people of Israel were convinced that there was a serious, credible challenge for peace on the other side. And concessions which earlier would have been considered unheard of became more realistic when the public at large in Israel became convinced that Sadat and Egypt were sincere. It is that that gives me hope. It gives me hope that even at this late date, if any other Arab leader or Palestinian leader were to similarly follow in Sadat's footsteps and make a challenge, offer real peace to Israel, once again, the people of Israel would respond. If the government didn't respond, there would be a new government, there would be elections, because fundamentally, on this I have no doubt, the people of Israel want peace. Uh, I don't know if many of you have been to Israel, but if you have, you know Israelis. You know that Israeli parents are not thrilled when their sons and daughters reach the age of 18 and have to go into the army for three years. They know that they're not thrilled when their loved ones have to then serve in reserve duty for 30 days a year, sometimes 60 days a year, until they reach the age of 55. But when you have a small country, surrounded potentially by a lot of adversaries, everyone has to make that kind of a personal sacrifice. They have been doing it in Israel. They will continue to do it in Israel because they feel that they have no alternative. But if faced with an alternative, they would quickly grab it, they would respond, they would much rather have their loved ones doing more productive, less dangerous things with their lives, interrupting their educations, their careers, than having to serve in the army. But fundamentally, from an Israeli perspective, you have to appreciate the fact that Israel is scared. Israel exists, of course, in the Middle East which is not the Middle West of the United States. The Middle East is a rough neighborhood. And in that part of the world, if you don't have a strong defense, you are simply not going to survive. And over these past 40 years, several major wars, constant terrorism, a lot of threats, uh, still to this very day, the Israelis are scared. They look around their neighborhood, and they see some ugly things going on. In Lebanon, the chaos, as we all know, unfortunately, continues. Syria, Israel's number one adversary from a conventional military point of view, massively resupplied by the Soviet Union these past few years with a new generation of missiles, tanks, fighter aircraft, developing a chemical and gas warfare capability, these ground-to-ground -ground missiles, a very worrisome problem as far as Israel's concerned. Syria right now has over 3,000 frontline battle tanks in its inventory, more tanks than exist in France, in England, 
obviously the potential in a small concentrated area for a devastating battle is there. Israel, by the way, has the capability of defeating the Syrians one-on-one. -on -one. Israel, by all estimates, would win decisively, impressively, but I recently had a chance to interview some of Israel's top generals. I can assure you that this is a victory which Israel doesn't want, doesn't need, because even in the process of winning, Israel would lose. A lot of Israeli soldiers would be killed. Many, many more would be injured, especially in these close-in tank battles. Uh, it would be economically disastrous. A lot of very expensive Israeli military equipment would be destroyed, would have to be replaced at great cost. Uh, it would be a, a terrible disaster for Israel's economic recovery of the past few years because it does maintain a relatively small standing army. The bulk of the Israeli army consists of the reserve units actively mobilized in a few days. Uh, Israel can assemble a large army, relatively speaking, in a few days, but that means all of the country's manpower uh, basically is devoted to this one effort. Productivity grinds to a halt, agriculture stops, exports stop, high-tech industries stop. It winds up costing the Israeli economy uh, literally tens of millions of dollars a day in lost income. Uh, and of course, hovering, all, hovering over all of this is the fear that a localized conflict between Israel and Syria, let's say, could escalate given Syria's close relationship with the Soviet Union, given Israel's close relationship with the United States. The last thing anyone needs is a full-scale war, and the Israelis uh, have as their number one objective a desire to deter any such possibility, any such conflict from even erupting. When Israel looks out elsewhere in its church, church, sees some other awful church, church, hopefully the war between Iran and Iraq is now winding down. But for eight years, it was a bloody, awful war, not very far away from Israel's borders, a war the, in which we saw Iraqis, of course, using chemical and gas warfare. We saw Iranians in their own fanaticism sending 10 and 12-year-old boys to the front as literal waves of human cannon fodder, a war that resulted by conservative estimates in the, in the death of over a million people, largely invisible to those of us in the West because there weren't many reporters allowed to cover that war. And news fundamentally is where there are news people, especially TV news, where there are cameras. If there are no reporters present, no cameras present, it's almost certainly not going to appear on the nightly news programs. Israel sees all of this. It sees Libya and Gaddafi. It sees elements of the PLO still involved in terrorism. It says to itself, this is a very, very worrisome situation. It says to itself, look what Israel's adversaries are doing against their own people, fellow Arabs, fellow Muslims, and the Israelis ask a fundamental, fundamental but ominous question, namely this, what would happen, what would the Arabs do to Israel or to Jews if they were ever given the chance? It is that fear which exists in Israel, and it certainly helps to explain why the Israelis occasionally come across as intransigent 
or tough-minded, but fundamentally they're very, very worried. They don't see this problem as simply a problem between Israelis and Palestinians. While there is that problem, and that certainly is at the core of this dispute, it has escalated into a much broader problem involving Israel, surrounded by 20 or 22 or 23 neighboring Arab states, most of whom, with the exception of Egypt, of course, are still in a formal state of war with Israel. Uh, and, and that's the, the nature of the problem, of course, as seen from Israel's perspective. I have no doubt that the Palestinians have an opportunity now. If the PLO were to accept the advice of a lot of others, including the Soviet Union, including Western Europe, including the United States, including even some of the Arab states, and were to bite the bullet, and if Yasser Arafat of the PLO were to formally, clearly, unambiguously utter the magic words that the United States has put forward as a condition leading to U.S. recognition of the PLO, that could force, that could result in a significant step forward. There's no doubt that at a minimum, the United States would be dealing directly, openly with the PLO, and there would be all sorts of automatic pressure on Israel to follow suit. Unfortunately, the PLO leadership still is hemming and hawing. Once in a while, it hints that it's prepared to accept and live in peace with Israel, alongside Israel in what is called a two-state solution. But other times, that declaration is not made in a very convincing manner. And you also hear statements from the, the, more, the more extreme elements of the PLO claiming that Palestine, of course, if there is a Palestinian state, uh, is not only Ramallah and Hebron and Nablus and Jericho on the West Bank, but also Haifa and Jaffa and the Galilee and Jerusalem, of course, which is all within pre-1967 Israel. You hear those chants during the Intifada. I was just out in the West Bank and spent, the several, spent several days there watching kids throw uh, rocks, watching Israeli soldiers in action trying to prevent the rock throwing, the Molotov cocktails, the other uh, uh, fighting that we've all been seeing on television, reading about these past several months. And one worrisome aspect, very worrisome aspect of this, is not even so much the extreme Palestinian nationalism that has surfaced, of course, but uh, even more so the extreme Islamic fundamentalism that is uh, taking shape, especially in Gaza, but even in the West Bank. True believers, and with these people, uh, who make no bones about it, they don't want to see any Jewish presence, they don't want to see any Zionist presence, they don't want to see Israel within any borders, and of course this is a great concern and plays into the most hardline elements within Israel itself. In Israel, as I said before, there is a debate underway. Both sides of the debate are trying to find a way out. If they can, they will, but fundamentally uh, I think Israel uh, public opinion in Israel will be dramatically, significantly influenced by what it sees as the challenge coming from the other side. Let me wind up with one final thought about the nature of Israel's fears, what all of us uh, should appreciate in looking at Israel today. Israel, as you know, is celebrating this year its 40th 
anniversary of independence. Israel was born in 1948. I can identify with that since I was born in 1948 as well. Uh, I've grown up in this world, a world in which I've never known uh, anything but there being an Israel. Many of you can remember a world uh, in which there was no Israel. Uh, I can also identify with Israel. Maybe Israel's going through a little bit of a midlife crisis right now. Forty years is supposed to be a mark of maturity, uh, but certainly uh, there are problems. And while Israel has done wonderful things over these past 40 years, building a vibrant democratic society, scientific achievements, high educational levels, let's not make any uh, mistake about it. Israelis are by no means perfect. They're capable of making mistakes like anyone else, and the Israelis can make mistakes. Uh, certainly that is a fundamental fact of life. But let's put Israel's meaning in this world into some sort of historic perspective. One way of doing that is to imagine, if you will, imagine if Israel this year were not celebrating its 40th anniversary, but imagine if Israel instead were this year celebrating its 50th anniversary. Imagine if Israel had been born in 1938 rather than in 1948, what that potentially could have meant to six million Jews in Europe. You know, we lost one-third of our people, one-third of the Jewish people, in only a few years' time. In 1939, there were 18 million Jews in the world, and in 1945, there were only 12 million left. One out of every three was wiped out. If Israel had existed in those years, at a minimum, there would have been a place that would have accepted all Jewish refugees. Unfortunately, even the United States made it difficult, shut the doors for the most part. Even Canada, a huge country with tremendous opportunities during the war, shut the doors. A few years ago, there was a bestseller published in Canada, a book about Canada's record in absorbing, welcoming Jewish refugees during the war. It, uh, two scholars had obtained the minutes of classified cabinet meetings during the war, and one of the ministers in charge of refugees was asked, how many Jews, this was in 43, how many Jews should Canada permit to enter the country? His response was chilling and became the title of this book in Canada. His response was, none is too many. With that kind of an attitude, of course, we appreciate why the Jews want to have a state, why they deserve to have a state. Certainly it helps to explain why Israel, 40 years into its in independence, is still determined to be tough, hard-nosed at times, knowing that there's only one, uh, one Jewish state, and that Jewish state, of course, has to survive. So on that note, let me thank you for inviting me here this afternoon and uh, look forward to the continua continuation of the program. Now we will hear from Mr. Husseini. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here for a number of reasons. This is a church and it's a holy place 
and I was born in Jerusalem, a holy city. And although I will quote from commandments given by Moses, who never made it to Jerusalem, but I think I can speak for all of us when I say that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. And some Hebrews rejected Moses' words. And if today Israel is celebrating 40 years, well, the Palestinians are suffering 40 years of exile. And if Israel exists, it is on the house of the Palestinians destroyed. Because there was a Palestine until 1948, it has been destroyed and its people scattered. Now for 40 years in refugee camps, yearning to return to their homeland. So this is a holy place. It's a beautiful building. Maybe it has some Islamic architecture in it. But the beauty of this place is not in its mosaic, but in understanding what I am reading and applying it to our daily life, whether it is here in Minnesota or in the West Bank, the occupied West Bank. And I'm pleased to speak to you, and I see among you many older people and wiser people. And most probably you have the wisdom, the wisdom of those who lived wars, whether it's the First and Second World War, or the Korea War, or the Arab-Israeli Wars, and I can go down the list. And therefore you know that it's hopeless and useless to continue to talk about war, and to speak the language of war, and to argue that Israel can win against Syria, and can destroy that country or this country. This is useless. We've had five major wars in this Arab-Israeli conflict, and I think the Palestinians are tired and the Israelis tired, and I think we want peace. And I know that you and your forefathers came from Scandinavia. And Scandinavia has always opted for peace in this conflict. That great man, Folk Bernadotte, Count Bernadotte, who went to Palestine in 1948, trying to mediate and find peace, was assassinated by Zionists, Shamir was responsible for assassinating Count Bernadotte. And I will never forget these nurses that I used to see as I visited refugee camps in Lebanon, in Rashidiya in the south, and other camps where nurses from Sweden and other Scandinavian countries came and worked with the Palestinians. And there was one nurse, if some of you remember, Miss Stoll who was caught in a siege of Tal Zatar refugee camp in 1976. And for 55 days, that camp had no water and no food. And as the old woman used to go to get some water and would be shot, they'd come back, and the water would be mixed with the color of their blood. And the children had to drink that water. And ultimately, the people were massacred. 
And uh, the survivors came out. Miss Stoll, the Swedish nurse, came out with one arm because they had to amputate her arm as a result of injury. So the legacy of your forefathers are for was for peace and still is for peace. And I know Minnesota and I know what Hubert Humphrey stood for. And I know that today if he sees what is happening in the West Bank Gaza, he will speak against it. And he will say that Israel should not receive tear gas and rubber bullets that injure and kill children and women. I have here a list of more than 40 Palestinian women who gave premature birth to dead uh, uh, children, infants, nine months, eight months, seven months, dead in the womb as a result of the use of American-made tear gas against Palestinian women inside their homes. And I have here a long, long list of Palestinians killed. I noticed a few days in the paper it said that for the first time Israeli sh soldiers have shot a five years old uh, child. But on this list there are the names of Palestinians who are four months old and three months old and one week old and there are people who are 70 years old and 50, 50 years old and 60 years old. 450 Palestinians have been killed in less than 11 months. 6,000 Palestinians today suffer with permanent injuries as a result of the use of rubber bullets. And more than 20,000 Palestinians have been taken to detention centers. Ansar II is one of the worst Israeli detention centers. And I don't want to repeat that phrase about these camps in Europe, but it is to us some kind of, of a horrible camp where people are detained for months in horrible conditions. And you have seen reports about the Israeli army burying Palestinians alive, throwing Palestinians from the helicopter, entering hospitals and beating up doctors and nurses, shooting inside hospitals, using tear gas and new types of poisonous tear gas that seems to be having some long-range effect on Palestinians. This is, of course, a sad and agonizing time for Jerusalem, the holy city. A city that stands for peace. A city that when Muslims entered under Omar ibn al-Khattab in the year 626, he entered it walking, barefooted, and prayed outside the, mosque, the, the church because he did not want his followers to destroy that church and build a mosque. And since that time, synagogues coexist side by side with churches and mosques. Because Islam recognizes Judaism and Christianity as great religions, religions of great spiritual values. Judaism is a great universal religion. It is not a nationality. And Jews have a right to live wherever they want, in America or the Soviet Union, or Syria or Lebanon or Palestine in freedom and equality and full human dignity. And we should condemn anti-Semitism because also anti-Semitism is directed against the Arabs because the Arabs are Semites. And when I see these pictures of the Palestinians portrayed as a snake, 
or this picture that someone drew when I went to speak on a campus and portrayed me, they, this is how they viewed me with submachine gun and a beard and so on, or portraying the Palestinians as cockroaches killed by Israeli raid, or on the front cover of Newsweek seen by millions of Americans, this is the image of the Palestinian or the Arab. This is a stereotyping and dehumanizing of a people. And I would say that the Muslim and Arab people and the Palestinians want peace. They are against terrorism. They abhor the kidnapping and, of people and taking hostages. And they say, and I say, all hostages should be released. All hostages sh should be released now and not tomorrow. But I want to remind you that Palestinians have been held hostage in Lebanon in their refugee camps for the last 40 years. And when a Palestinian is kidnapped, he is immediately killed, or the young woman is raped, or the children are sold, or who knows what happens to them. So when we demand freedom for Americans, we should also demand freedom for Palestinians and the right to leave their refugee camps and return to their homes and towns and farms in Galilee and Haifa and Lid and Ramla and Jerusalem and all over Palestine. And when we talk about terrorism, we should realize that terrorism has been used by everybody, whether it's by the Hittites and the Babylonians, or the, by the French Revolution, or by some American troops in Vietnam who massacred civilians, or the horrors of the Second World War, where not only six million Jews perished, but 25 million human beings. 25 million human beings, Russian and Japanese and Americans and Europeans. So if we want to remember the legacy of the dead, we should include all of them and say that we want all the people to survive, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, Palestinians, and Israelis, to live in peace, in tolerance, and coexistence. And I want to remind you that in 1933, that great Jewish writer Albert Einstein wrote, and it is as if he was predicting what is going to happen. He wrote, I should much rather see reasonable agreement with the Arabs on the basis of living together in peace than the creation of a Jewish state. Apart from practical considerations, my awareness of the essential nature of Judaism resists the idea of a Jewish state with borders, an army, and a measure of temporal power. No matter how modest, I'm afraid of the inner damage Judaism will sustain especially from the development of a narrow nationalism within our ranks. I am not a believer in the nation-state system. And as a historian, I think the nation-state system and kings and feudal lords have been responsible for war, not people. People have been victims of war. And your forefathers who immigrated from Europe and escaped the feudal wars of kings and feudal lords came here seeking equality and justice and peace and tolerance. And if you remember the crusaders who went to save Jerusalem, committed atrocities in European cities and in Constantinople and ultimately massacred innocent Muslims and Jews and Christians in the holy city until the blood reached the knees of the horses, according to historians. 
America is a great country because in its Declaration of Independence and Constitution, it is written that all people should be equal. All people should enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, the right to be alive, to live, not to be shot in the streets or dragged at night from your home and imprisoned and disappear. Liberty, the right to speak up, to speak your mind, to vote for whoever you want. I am one of those who is denied the right today to return to Jerusalem simply because I speak. I am not a military man. I never picked up a gun. I was born in Jerusalem. My colleague, Mr. Blitzer, was born in Buffalo, New York. And yet he can say he is from Israel. And I cannot return to Jerusalem. This is a great injustice. And therefore, what the Palestinians seek is justice, freedom. And you cannot have peace if there is injustice and oppression. There cannot be peace if there is denial of rights of people in South Africa and the segregation and the brutality and the racism. There cannot be peace with racism and fascism. We are opposed to fascism and racism and militarism. You Americans are paying millions of dollars, billions of dollars, to support the Israeli military occupation of the West Bank, Gaza. According to Israeli records, Israel has spent more than $600 million at that occupation. Every bullet they fire is paid for by the American taxpayer. It is one thing to support Israel's right to exist, but it is something else to support Israel's occupation of the West Bank, Gaza. In the West Bank, Gaza, my friends, there are a million and a half people. And if already 450 have been killed and 6,000 injured, this is statistically close to killing close to 10 or 15 million Americans in 10 months. It is genocide. It is a crime against humanity. And I suffer with my people. But I will not let that suffering turn into hatred so that I would argue that we Palestinians should have a small Palestinian entity where we can have defensible borders. We have been pushed, the Palestinians, today to a position to argue the need for a Palestinian state. And as you know, our leadership, the PLO and Chairman Arafat, has nearly said he's willing to accept a Palestinian state next to Israel and there be a two-state solution and de facto recognition. But I think this is not what the Palestinians want. They want to live in a land where Jews, Christians, and Muslims can coexist together, can intermarry, can learn from each other. Judaism and the Hebrew heritage has great values and culture. And Islam and Arabism has great values and cultures. And it is a fact that during the reign of Harun al-Rashid, the great Muslim ruler, one of his advisors, top advisors was Ben Maimonides, a Jewish historian and doctor who made major contributions at that time. So the Arabs and Muslims did not commit anti-Semitism and massacre of the Jews. That was committed by Nazism in Europe. And the Palestinians should not pay for the crimes of Nazism in Germany. And if the Jews want a state of their own, this is their right. But they should not take someone else's home and expel that person and continue to expand and argue 
that they need a larger state. So I think, my friends, we are talking here about two visions. One is a humanist vision that says we are one human family, that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are religions that preach justice and equality, and that we are opposed to fascism and militarism and racism, and that this great country that is at the height of its military power is not strong because of that military power, military awesome power, but because of its humanist values and principles. And that this country, if it has to learn the lesson of the Roman Empire, it must continue to be committed to these humanist principles and values, and but must be aware of the overextension of military power. America is not the policeman of the world, or the military power that should continue to have military garrisons like Israel and other military states to protect its interests. It, its interests lie in economic development and economic survival of the human race, in equality and freedom and human dignity for human beings. This is the future in the 21st century. And if temporarily the Jews and the Israelis and the Palestinians have to opt for a two-state solution, in a land the size of New Jersey, I hope and pray to God that in the 21st century they can communicate beyond borders and they can somehow learn how to co coexist, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, in a secular democratic society where our children will have no more to carry guns but can turn the plowshares and plow the land and live in peace. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Husseini. Two men, both eloquent, both stating the legacy of concerns and issues uh, from their particular point of view. But today's forum, while we are in a unique time in history, is also a unique forum in that it is called a dialogue. And one of the assumptions we make about a dialogue is that those people who are entering into that have some point of common ground. It is one thing to be able to make those statements, eloquent as they are, as to where people differ. A little bit more difficult, especially with the concern and the heat and the passion that currently exists, to find those places where, in fact, there is some common ground to start with. So in this next section, which will be an opportunity for both men to respond to the initial statements, we are asking that they respond, first of all, given five to seven minutes to the statement made by the other, but also to look at what areas they might overlap on. Where is the common ground amidst the issues, the shrillness that we hear? Where are those common grounds? So that will be taking place in this next section, each individual five to seven minutes. I would also encourage you to pass your questions to the front, and then we'll be dealing with those questions from you and from the radio audience immediately after uh, Mr. Blitzer's and Mr. Husseini's response. So let us begin with the response of Mr. Blitzer. Thank you very much. 
Let me respond briefly to some of the points that Dr. Husseini made, and then I'll try to answer the question about where there is some room for overlap, where there perhaps is some opportunity for agreement. On the central question, central issue that Dr. Husseini raises, the creation of a democratic, secular Palestine, a, a state where Jews, Christians, Muslims would live in peace, harmony. While that sounds very nice, of course, the fact is that Israelis and their friends have to look at the real world. They have to look at the fact that there are already today 20 or 22 independent Arab states. Which one of those Arab states is democratic? Which one of those Arab states is secular? Which one of those Arab states will protect the rights of a minority? And there are some Jews left in some of those Arab states. Unfortunately, I don't think uh, we should be very envious of their plight, especially the two or 3,000, uh, the handful of Jews left in Syria. When Israel was established in 1948, there were two refugee, two refugee problems that developed. There was a Palestinian refugee problem. The result, unfortunately, of the Palestinians and the Arab world rejecting the 1947 UN partition resolution, which recognized a Palestinian and an Arab, an Arab and a Jewish state in Palestine. The Jews accepted that resolution. The Arabs went to war against it in 1948 when Israel was declared independent, and a refugee problem developed. In many wars, there are refugee problems. But there were also 600,000 or 700,000 or maybe even 800,000 Jewish refugees that resulted from that war, Jews from Iraq, from Yemen, from Egypt, from Morocco, from throughout the Arab world who basically had to leave, either were kicked out, forced out, or whatever. Most of them penniless, leaving behind billions of dollars of property and wealth, came to Israel. They haven't been kept in refugee camps these past 40 years. They've become productive members of Israel's society productive Israeli citizens. Unfortunately, the Palestinians were kicked out or left or whatever. They went to refugee camps and they've been kept, many of them, in refugee camps, not by Israelis, but by Arabs, by fellow Arabs who were supposedly interested in helping the Palestinian cause. There are still refugee camps in Jordan, in Syria, in Lebanon, and elsewhere. Uh, only Jordan, by the way, for the most part, welcomed those Palestinians and gave them uh, citizenship. I believe Dr. Husseini is a Jordanian citizen uh, and travels on a Jordanian passport, although he's uh, been living in the United States now for many years. So when the Israelis are skeptical about these, this talk of a democratic, secular Palestine, I think they have good reason to be skeptical. Now there have been many missed opportunities over the years. There was a missed opportunity in 47 and 48. I think there was a great missed opportunity in 1977, 78, 79 during the Camp David negotiations. If the Palestinians and other Arabs would have accepted the Camp David Accords as envisaged by Begin, Carter, and Sadat, there would have been a five-year transitional period, autonomy, self-government for the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. By now, that would have been history. There would have been negotiations leading to what they called the final settlement. Unfortunately, that opportunity was missed. Israel made a dramatic gesture. It wasn't exploited by the other side. 
Having said all that, I don't think it's productive at this late stage to go over all the history of missed opportunities. There's justice on both sides. The fundamental fact of life, though, is that there is an Israel today. It exists, a tiny country. You know, we speak about the West Bank. You think you're talking about a huge area. You drive outside of Jerusalem, you're on the West Bank. You drive 15 minutes from Jerusalem, you're in Ramallah. You drive 10 or 12 miles from Tel Aviv, from the populated coastline of Israel, you're on the West Bank. So you're dealing with tiny, tiny areas, and there are serious security problems. The Israelis are concerned that there could be a Beirut created in the West Bank or in Gaza. They have legitimate security concerns. That is a fundamental fact of life. Looking ahead, therefore, I would propose that the only way out of this mess is that there be real negotiations involving everyone concerned. I see some room for optimism in that some of the countries which earlier were refusing to accept the notion of Israel at all in the Arab world, in the Soviet bloc, are now increasingly coming to terms with Israel's existence. Israel's a fact of life. Uh, it was encouraging the other day this week to see 95 countries in the UN General Assembly support Israel's vote on their credentials, 15 more countries than last year. Uh, certainly the fact that the Soviet Union voted against Israel was a disappointment, especially because of this improved dialogue that has developed in the past few years between Israel and the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union and Israel will eventually reestablish diplomatic relations. Several of their Eastern European allies already are in the process of doing so. Israel is at peace with Egypt, the largest of the Arab countries. It's a cold peace. It's what they call a cold peace. But a cold peace, I can assure you, is a lot better than a hot war. And at least Israeli and Egyptian soldiers are not dying as they did by the thousands in Sinai. Uh, Israel is talking to Morocco. King Hassan welcomed the Israeli uh, leader, Shimon Peres, there a couple years ago. There has been a quiet dialogue with Jordan. Tonight, if you watch Nightline on ABC, there will be an interview with uh, King Hussein and an interview with Shimon Peres of Israel. They're, they're not all that far apart. The Palestinians have to be involved. They should be involved. Hopefully, the Palestinian leadership will grab this opportunity and accept Israel as a fundamental fact of life. Once they do, there will be a response from Israel. But if they don't, unfortunately, the stalemate and the, the, the horror that we see today will continue. Thank you very much. Well, if uh, all the Arab states are not democratic and uh, are oppressive and dictatorships, then I don't think Israel can make peace with them. Uh, my colleague seems to be stressing the need for Israeli-Arab states agreements and treaties, but on the other hand, he has labeled the Arab states as dictatorships and undemocratic and there is a discrepancy in, in the argument, and I think he has to make up his mind. There's no question that there are grave violations of human and civil rights in the Arab countries. 
Some of them are not democratic. But I think all of you know that this is a transition period. The Middle East, like parts of Africa and Asia, was ruled by colonial powers for 400, 500 years, 200 years. And they just gained their independence in the 60s, 50s and 60s. The Arab people want democracy, want economic prosperity, want the right to vote. And I think ultimately with education, with a struggle, they will be able to establish more democratic governments. So even if today we have Arab states that are undemocratic, this does not justify for Israel to do what it is doing. And I must say in the context of the Middle East, Israel is also is not a very democratic country. So you cannot throw stones at your neighbor's house if it is made of glass, because your house too is made of glass. And I can make a case that Israel is also uh, uh, an undemocratic militaristic state, and I can use the example of Sparta if I want, because as a matter of fact, Israelis do not go to the army when they are age 18, but they go to the army when they are age 10. The Nahal paramilitary training is given to Israeli children, as you know, from age, I think, 8 or 10 up to 16, preparing them uh, to enter the army. So Israel is a modern Sparta. Everybody up to age 55 carries weapons, and most of them are reservists and can go fight. But militarism will not save the Jewish people. And this is a lesson of history. Great empires have had military might. The Greeks and Alexander the Great, the Romans, the Crusaders, the British, and we Palestinians say, and the Israelis, and they will go. In that sense, this kind of an Israel is not going to continue to exist as a military superior state in history. In 100 years, 200 years, who knows? Can Israel with 5 million people continue to fight Egypt with 40, 50 million people? Egypt with a history that dates back to some 15,000 or 10,000 years? We have to learn the lessons of history. Jews have a, a right to return to the Holy Land. Christians have a right to return for pilgrim, pilgrimage. But Christians have no right to go and expel Jews or Muslims and take their land because God promised so. And Jews have no right to return to this land and expel the original inhabitants because God is a real estate dealer promising lands to one people or another. God is not a real estate dealer. And I think the return is meant in a spiritual sense. And that is why in Israel there's a, a large group of Orthodox Jews who refuse to recognize Israel because they say it has been established by military force, it has denied the Palestinians their rights, and Israel will come in a spiritual way with the Messiah coming, and that's why they oppose that kind of an Israel. So the opposition to Israel and the rejection of Zionism is not only a Palestinian fact, it's also a Jewish fact. And I have met hundreds and thousands of American Jews and Israelis who are anti-Zionist, who share the dream that I have talked about of a secular democratic society. Jews share this dream, and we have the right to dream. And when Martin Luther King spoke about his dream, about one day in Mississippi, children, black and white, sitting and eating together on the table of justice and equality, he was speaking my words that in the future, I hope in Jerusalem, Jewish and Arab children will sit on the table of brotherhood and eat inequality and justice. So we must have dreams and visions, and we must, we must not continue to search for what is ugly and bad in, in the history of the other side. 
I've listened to Mr. Blitzner very carefully. And he keeps hitting back on what is ugly, what is bad in the Arab and Islamic civilization and among the Palestinians. I've listened carefully for clues to peaceful solutions. He has not said that. He's laid the blame on the Palestinians and the PLO and tried to vindicate Israel. But I want to see what are his proposals for peace, and I made specific proposals. I said the Palestinians today accept a Palestinian state, an entity, a homeland, a state of their own, on their land, where they live, not in the East Bank of Jordan or in Nebraska, but where they live on their land, in the West Bank, Gaza. And therefore, you have a de facto two states, de facto recognition. Or we can opt to work for a peaceful solution where there's one secular democratic state, where Jewish Christians and Muslims live in one secular democratic society like in this country. Because my friends in this country, when blacks were persecuted and Jews were persecuted, nobody said there should be a Jewish state in New York and a black state in Mississippi. People fought for civil and human rights and Jews led in that struggle. So if you lead for the struggle of civil and equal rights in the United States, how come you justify a theocratic, fascist, Israeli state only for Jews at the expense of the Palestinian Arabs? How come you want the Palestinian Arabs to be dismissed and resettled as refugees as if it's a mathematical equation? Jewish refugees versus Arab refugees. You settle them in Saudi Arabia, we've settled them in Israel. We're not take, talking about a bunch of sheep. And the Jews should know that, at least those who argue among them, that they are yearning for that land for 3,000 years. I fail to see how someone can trace his ancestry 3,000 years. But if that person traces his ancestry 3,000 years, then surely he can understand the affection and the love of a man born on that land, where the bones of his forefathers are, are there in the graves, where he owns the farm, where he wants to plow his land, and where he has welcomed Jewish immigrants and said, come and live with me peace, in peace, cousins, as Emir Faisal did in writing to Wiseman. So we are not opposed to Jews coming and living in Palestine or Syria or Jordan or all over the Arab world. But we are opposed to the idea of a Jewish exclusive state based on American military might and power. And let us leave the issue of the Soviet Union aside because obviously it's a political ploy to play on your emotions. The Soviet Union supported the establishment of Israel in 1947, supplied weapons and arms to the terrorist groups, the Ergun and the Haganah, in the 40s from Czechoslovakia and Poland and so on. So let's not enter that debate and let us not keep talking about our fears. We, the Palestinians, are, are the most to be afraid today because we are being slaughtered. And it is common news today to open the paper and read two more Palestinian children shot. It's as if it's become a common way of life. Like in Ireland, that killing is daily unacceptable. I don't want to live on my fears, and I want to live on hope, and I think the Palestinians, out of their hopes, out of their fears and concerns, have projected a great humanism, and still continue to say, as I say, because I am speaking for the Palestinian people, as Chairman Arafat said at his United Nations speech in 1974, for we deplore all those crimes committed against the Jews. We also deplore all the real discrimination suffered by them because of their faith. And he said, I proclaim before you that when we speak of our common hopes for the Palestine of tomorrow, we include all Jews now living in Palestine 
who choose to live with us there in peace and without discrimination. In my formal capacity as chairman of the PLO, I announce here that we do not wish the shedding of one drop of either Arab or Jewish blood. I'm quoting from his speech in 74. And I think he and our people have come a long way to say that we are willing to accept a Palestinian state, a de facto two-state solution, until our children can learn that borders and flags and nation states are the cause of war, and that ultimately in the 21st century, they must extend their hands beyond borders to coexist and live together. Otherwise, we are doomed together. Thank you very much. It is time to remind our radio audience that uh, you are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in Minneapolis. The agenda today, Palestine and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Members of the radio audience are invited to phone in their questions uh, for this extended forum. The phone number is 332-3421. Those here today who must leave uh, may feel free to do so now. We do want to thank our two speakers, Mr. Blitzer and Mr. Husseini, who have spoken to us from mind and heart with passion and, and compassion. We wish to thank Minnesota Public Radio for covering this extended forum. This forum will be rebroadcast, let me remind you, at 9 o'clock tonight over KSJN AM 1330. We wish also to thank IDS Financial Services Incorporated for co-sponsoring today's forum. And not least, we wish to thank Mr. Futak, who has rendered a service already and who will render an additional and valued service by presiding over and moderating the question period that will now follow. Mr. Futak. Thank you, Dr. Meisel. Let me begin by uh, raising again the, the initial question I did several minutes ago, and that is, how do we get to this issue of the common ground? And so beginning with uh, Mr. Blitzer and then to Dr. Husseini, uh, my question is this. If you were part of that negotiating team from either the side of the Israelis or the side of the Palestinians, and you were coming to the table, what would you come with that would be opening to the other person to say, here we start on common ground and be specific? In any negotiation in the Middle East, we have to remember we're dealing with what they call the politics of the marketplace. People recognize, whether they're haggling over a rug or whether they're haggling over life and death issues, people recognize that when you go into a negotiation, you're going to start off with the position that you're not necessarily going to have when you wind up the negotiations. And any statement, any position you take at the beginning of negotiations is going to be your opening bargaining position. And from that position, the negotiations are going to unfold. You're going to start making concessions on both sides. Therefore, I don't think it would be advantageous from the Israeli or the Arab 
a point of view to overly advertise how far they're willing to go in the course of negotiations. And the same principles, of course, apply in labor management negotiations or any kind of negotiations. I do think there has to be some common ground. There has to be some starting point for any negotiation. And certainly the Israelis are not going to negotiate with anyone who is committed to the destruction of Israel. Israel will only negotiate with parties that recognize Israel's right to exist, recognize that there is an Israel and that uh, Israel will continue to exist. The United States over these years has endorsed that Israeli position. Going back now many years, the U.S. has stated that the PLO should be brought into the negotiations only when they accept this minimal condition that they formally, clearly, unambiguously accept Israel's right to exist. If they do that, then the PLO will have a role at the negotiating table. If they don't, then they're considered out of the bounds of any kinds of negotiations. So therefore, if you ask me uh, what are the common grounds, I think that Israel should recognize that there are Palestinians, and of course Israel has formally in the Camp David Accords. Israel under Menachem Begin recognized what they call, quote, the legitimate rights of the Palestinian people and their just requirements. Israel has accepted this and it has repeated this affirmation on many occasions over these past 10 years. Uh, and so there has to be some common ground and I think there will be provided that uh, that the PLO finally comes around and accepts what all of us know is a fundamental fact of life that Israel exists. Well, I'm not a politician, and many times I feel politicians are bound by so many restrictions and, uh, about negotiations and so on. But I think if uh, I can answer this objectively, I would say that the PLO and the Palestinian leadership have uh, come out with specific proposals that they are willing to attend an international conference under the auspices of the United Nations and members of the Security Council where all parties will be included, that they are willing to sit down and negotiate and that they accept all UN resolutions, not only 242, but all UN resolutions, because UN resolutions also say that the Palestinians have a right to self-determination, the refugees have a right to return or be compensated, and Palestinians have a right to a state. There is no Palestinian state today. There are Palestinian refugees, Palestinians under occupation. So to keep saying that the Palestinians should recognize Israel where is the Palestinian state to recognize the Israeli state? You cannot continue to tell the oppressed and the persecuted, recognize your oppressor and persecutor. It would be ridiculous for me or for my colleague to go to the West Bank today and tell the Palestinians recognize Israel. Because Israel today in the West Bank is an army shooting and tanks and helicopters and you want them to recognize that, they're going to tell you the Israeli army must get out and we should have our, our state, as they have clearly said. Um, I think the PLO has come a long way. And the PLO, by the way, was established in 1964 in Jerusalem. It has a parliament in exile. 
and it has departments, building schools and hospitals and clinics and having political offices all over the world. It's the organization that speaks for the Palestinians and deals with their affairs and it has a treasury that spends money on families whose parents die and gives aid to refugees and gives aid to those whose homes have been destroyed. It's an organization that in the absence of a recognized government speaks for the Palestinians. We the Palestinians do, do not determine who represents the Israelis. I don't think they should determine who represents the Palestinians. I think the Palestinians have been internationally recognized and if anyone doubts that, let us have free elections under UN auspices in the West Bank. And I hope in the next two, three months, maybe Reagan in the last month might have some wisdom and make a breakthrough in the Middle East, although I have my doubts, but I hope, I pray that somehow he will make a breakthrough and will tell Israel no more weapons and money, withdraw from the West Bank Gaza, come to the negotiating table, let us have a two-state solution so that the Palestinians can have their state and Israel will be uh, somehow secure and we can have a two-state solution as a step towards ultimately peace and trust between the two people. My friends, peace begins in the heart of people. Peace is not made by politicians and drawing borders because you know European history. Peace begins in the heart of people and I believe in the heart of, of the Israelis and the Jews and in the heart of the Palestinians there is no hatred there is hatred for war and killing. How can the two people learn that they are also human beings, that they share grief, that the war must end and that they must begin to make peace? There are breakthroughs, and I said I have talked to many Israelis from the peace movement who have written and spoken against the Israeli government. That is a breakthrough, I think, so that we can ultimately have peace because peace ultimately is in the hearts of human beings. Both of you mentioned the idea of the recognition of Israel by the Palestinians and mentioned also the idea of the two-state option. Could you respond to that question of the two-state option? Is that an, agree an agreement between the two of you that that, that would be a reasonable um, goal to seek? And if it is, what would be the conditions that you would go ahead and ascribe to that uh, situation where both the Palestinian and Israeli states would coexist. Mr. Blitzer. Uh, first of all, Dr. Husseini, I think if you reread the text of the Camp David Accords, it does say, and Israel signed its uh, signature to it, it does recognize the legitimate rights of the Palestinian people and their just requirements. That's a, an exact quote I covered the Camp David negotiations for 12 days uh, or 13 days and, and that was a, a major concession as far as Menachem Begin was concerned and the autonomy that was envisaged at Camp David was not a permanent solution that was for a five-year transitional agreement whereby perhaps confidence building measures on both sides would develop Palestinians, Israelis would be able to see how they get along during this interim phase and perhaps in the third, fourth, fifth year of that transi transitional period, there could be some sort of uh, negotiations that would try to resolve uh, the final status. Uh, 
what they called the final status. The final status was never envisaged as being permanently an autonomy or a self-governing authority, which uh, is the language of Camp David. Now, my sense is that once negotiations get off the ground, you never know where they're going to wind up. People will uh, enter into negotiations, as I said, with different positions. The two-state solution is one possibility. Perhaps creative uh, diplomats from all sides can come up with some other formula. Perhaps there could be some sort of involvement of Jordan, a joint Jordanian-Palestinian delegation. Perhaps there could be uh, some formula that none of us even imagined in the course of negotiations creativity might yet develop. The Labor Party this week came forward with some specific formulas, some specific proposals in Israel. Uh, the Labor Party endorsed the idea of an international conference, an international conference that would not impose a settlement on the parties, but one that would kick off direct negotiations between Israelis and Arabs. Uh, the Labor Party in Israel also proposed, accepted the notion of exchanging land for peace, uh, a formula I'm sure that uh, was welcomed by the United States and many in the Arab world. Uh, certainly, uh, the Labor Party, in a dramatic development this week, uh, endorsed the notion of freely held elections in the West Bank and Gaza for the Palestinians so that they can select their own representatives uh, in negotiations. All of these steps are concrete proposals that have come forward, and I think that uh, perhaps there is an opportunity to move forward. My sense is, though, that if there are going to be painful, difficult, dangerous concessions, which Israel at some point down the road will have to make if there is a negotiating process, if Israel is directly, credibly challenged by the Palestinians, by other Arab states. My own sense, though, is that the Labor Party alone in Israel, while it is a big party, one of the two dominant parties in the Knesset, Israel's parliament, the Labor Party alone will not be able to carry it through. We will need the mainstream of the Likud involved. Otherwise, there will be a real debate, if not actual unrest, civil disobedience, perhaps even violence, that will unfold in Israel. The mainstream of the Likud will have to be convinced that there is an opportunity, just as it was convinced when Menachem Begin was prime minister, and Sadat boldly, dramatically broke all the rules, came to Jerusalem, and addressed the Knesset. Now, on this notion of Israel's being a democracy, uh, there is a democracy in Israel. It is the only democracy in the Middle East. There is a Knesset, a parliament in Israel with 120 members, ranging from the extreme right wing. Rabbi Kahana's Kach party, one seat, he was just uh, rejected as a viable candidate by the Supreme Court in Israel, all the way on the extreme right wing, all the way to the Communist Party in the Knesset, four seats, another pro-PLO party in the Knesset, uh, Arab-Jewish, a mixed list, all the way on the left wing. The mainstream of Israel, left of center labor, right of center Likud. Arabs in Israel could be the key swing vote in this current election. They could have a significant impact on whether or not the Labor Party will be able to form a coalition government. I've seen the Knesset in action. Sometimes the debates get quite lively in there. People uh, not only screaming, but throwing chairs and fighting. I can assure you that when you've covered the Knesset, as I have, you know you're not covering the House of Lords. 
It's a, a rather lively parliamentary body. I don't see any body like that anywhere in the Arab world. I don't see a free press that exists in Israel. My own newspaper, the Jerusalem Post, aggressively criticizing Israeli governmental decisions, very often, other Israeli newspapers, Haaretz, Yidiyot Achronot, Ma'ariv, free press, an Arab press in Israel that can say things that I don't think exist anywhere else in the Arab world. And to argue that Israel is uh, undemocratic uh, certainly undermines the case that you're trying to make. There is a reasonable case there, but let's not get carried away with the hyperbole. Thank you. Well, uh, the attempt to try to go back to Camp David, take us back to 1978, or the attempt to have negotiations between Perez and Hussein point to one direction, over jumping the Palestinians, excluding the Palestinians, denying the rights of the Palestinians. The rights of the Palestinians, my friends, are the right to return to their homeland, the right of the refugees to return to their properties and farms and homes, the right to self-determination, and the right to a Palestinian independent state. If Jews have a right to a Palestinian independent state, Palestinians have a right to a Palestinian independent state. Uh, President Carter called it a homeland, and actually it, it should be a state. And as you know, the Israeli case many times has tried to say that Kurds should have a state or that uh, Africans in South Sudan should have a state of their own. It has argued for minorities, but on the other hand, it has denied Palestinians the right to self-determination and a statehood. You cannot make peace with Egypt and war on the Palestinians. I think Begin wanted to make peace with Egypt and continue the war against the Palestinians. Peace has one face. Shamir, the present Prime Minister of Israel, voted against Camp David. And he says he will never give up the West Bank Gaza. He calls them Judea and Samaria. They are part of Israel. He wants to annex them. And I think the aim of the Israeli military brutality of killings and shootings and economically choking the West Bank Gaza is to drive the Palestinians out. In other words, the Israeli government is doing what Meir Kahana is saying, but it is not saying it. And it's not true that Kahana has been censored by the Israeli Supreme Court, not yet. He has been censored by his colleagues in the Knesset, politicians who, by censoring him, think that they can get votes from rightists so that Likud will gain more rights and be able to be stronger than labor. What Kahane is saying, as a matter of fact, the Israeli government is, is, is doing. And to the Palestinians, Israel is not a democracy. Because the 700,000 Palestinians who remained, remained until 1964 under Israeli military rule. I'm sorry to have to go back to the record, but my colleague has forced the issue. Uh, they were denied, they, they could not move or travel without a military permit. They were under military government, their land was confiscated. In 66, the military government was removed. Uh, however, they have had many demonstrations and uh, 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 political parties demanding equal civil and human rights. And actually, the articles written by Mr. Friedman in the New York Times and later published in a book document the case of the Arab minority who are, he calls them, 20th uh, 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 class citizens in Israel. Uh, they don't have equality in education, in health, at the universities, 
if you look at the statistics, and of course in the West Bank Gaza, newspapers are censored, uh, even ABC, NBC, CBS have been censored, journalists are shot. Yesterday, an American freelance, uh, Neil Cassidy was shot as he was taking some pictures, uh, shot by the Israeli army. Um, so, to the Palestinians, Israel is not a democracy. And if my colleague argues that the Arab governments are not democratic, then I'll have to counter with the same argument. I know that we live today in an era where governments have lots of problems. Uh, the Reagan administration has been criticized as a government. We are losing faith in, in, in governments today. We are seeking alternatives to governments. How can people protect their rights and force governments to move towards pro the protection of civil and human rights? So I'm, I don't want to be partisan. I don't want to say only Israel is a democracy and the rest of them are barbarians. That is anti-Semitic. That is a racist slogan. The Arabs are a humanist people who built a great civilization, who gave you contributions in algebra and mathematics and sciences and communicated with Greece and with Charlemagne of Europe and accepted Jews as they escaped from the Inquisition during the 9th and 10th century and lived in peace and had their golden era according to Jewish historians, with the Muslims. So, I, I don't want to be partisan, and if, 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 if you have to point a finger at one side, then the finger must be pointed at the other side. The challenge is how can we push the, these governments to make war? How can people force their governments to make peace? I don't think President Reagan went to Moscow and the Soviet Union because he wanted to. It's because he sensed that the American people are tired and they want some breakthroughs. They want some achievements. They are living in the nightmare of nuclear war. They want to see some agreements. And so how can we, as people, force our politicians and governments to move towards peace, to spend less money on armaments and more money on economic development and agriculture? You think that that uh, rocket that Israel fired in outer space is a great achievement that cost billions of dollars with American technology and know-how? That money should have been spent for economic development and education and culture for both Israelis and Arabs rather than sending satellites to outer space. We have approximately five minutes left until the, the 1.30 time. I'd like um, Dr. Husseini to respond first to this, this question, and it is a follow-up to just the recent remarks that you did make. And that is, to, to what extent do these dialogues here in the United States by American Jews, by American Palestinians, what effect does that dialogue have on the reality of politics and individuals in Israel and Palestine right now? What is the effect that these types of forums and others may have in, in designing or possibly setting new dimensions to the discussion uh, in the Palestinian area? I think debates and discussions and dialogue between people, peoples, are very important. This country is a country of people from so many diverse backgrounds, from Scandinavia and Germany and France and England and China and Japan and the Muslim countries and so on. We must continue to have dialogue with an open heart. We will disagree. We will dis disagree on issues, on inter interpreting history. But I think it's important always to talk rather than fight. At least that's one point where I have found some agreement with my uh, colleague. 
it's better to fight with words than fighting with bullets. And I wish that the Israelis and the Palestinians can find ways of settling their arguments through words and at the negotiating table, rather by the continued killing in the West Bank and Gaza. But there's another issue here that concerns me. Is peace made by power and military power? Or is peace made by people? Empires have imposed peace by, by military power. And the Zionist argument and the Israeli argument is that Israel should continue to be military superior to maintain that peace. I'm disturbed by this. This means the Palestinians cannot have peace today because they are not as militarily superior as Israel. I don't want the Palestinians to become Zionists and to have to arm themselves and build a powerful army like the Israeli army where all of them can carry guns and where even their civilians can shoot Israeli civilians. You know, in the West Bank, Gaza, Israeli civilians shoot Palestinians, and some propose that there should be a law made that they have a right to shoot Palest uh, Palestinians. You know, when the Israeli commandos landed in Tunis at night and went to the house of Arafat's deputy, uh, Khalil al-Wazir, shot him, put 70 bullets in his body in front of the eyes of his wife and children, and left. That night, on the wire services, and I have the copy of the wire service, uh, Ariel Merari, a terrorism expert at Tel Aviv University said, well, he was killed by Arafat because there are disagreements between him and Arafat and I think that they, they have killed him. And it took four or five days for everyone to know that it was an, a, a military operation by the Israeli army, the navy, uh, the Mossad, the intelligence, went all the way to Tunisia, entered this man's home, killed him, and came back, and one of the reasons in Israel was to raise the morale of the Israeli army. To raise the morale of the Israeli army. It's a sad commentary on this democracy where one man has to lie and cover up for a crime. Uh, and I don't see what kind of a democracy is this. A democracy that can have a Sharon who's found guilty for the massacres of Sabra and Shatila and not put on trial and uh, jailed and imprisoned. You can tell me that in the Arab countries, those who commit crimes are also not imprisoned. True. But if Israel is truly a democracy, then Kahana and Sharon should be in jail today. Uh, on the matter of the impact that these kinds of forums have on Israelis and Palestinians and other Arabs, it's a slow process. I don't think any of us should be under any illusions that there are quick fix overnight solutions to these very emotional, serious problems. Uh, there is a war underway, and Mr. Khalil al-Wazir, whom the Israelis killed in Tunisia, was not just uh, some politician. He was a military leader of Fatah, the military arm of the PLO. He had sent a lot of Palestinians into battle against Israelis. There were spectacular terrorist incidents over the years, uh, and Mr. Al-Wazir uh, was clearly responsible. It's not as if he was some innocent, nice guy who was just sitting around. He was actively involved in a military struggle against Israel, whether you want to call it armed struggle or terrorism, it's irrelevant. There was a military struggle, uh, and uh, as a result, if you get into the kitchen, you have to expect uh, that there will be some heat. I'm not condoning those kinds of actions. I think we should just realize that there is a war underway. And yes, there have been atrocities committed 
on both sides. Israeli children, Israeli women have died over the years as well, as we all know, Ma'alot, Kiryat Shmona, the Lod airport massacre, hijackings, bombings, letter bombs. Both sides have seen a horrible tragedy over the years unfold. To go back and just revive all of those memories is not going to be productive. The Supreme Court in Israel ruled this week that Rabbi Kahana cannot run for the Knesset. The same day the Supreme Court in Israel ruled that the Progressive Party, a mixed Arab Jewish list of pro-PLO supporters, could run for the Knesset. Is that democracy or is that fascism? Where do those kinds of things, as I said before, exist anywhere in the Arab world? If a democratic secular state in Palestine is Dr. Husseini's vision, in the real world, I don't think we should be under any illusions. The Israelis will take that vision with a grain of salt and will suspect it could be, the, could be their nightmare. Thank you very much. We have come to the end of our time together. Our hope and prayer is that comings together like this will contribute, however modestly, to the ultimate resolution of this tragic situation in our society and in our world. We do want to thank Mr. Blitzer, Mr. Husseini, and not least of all, Mr. Futak for being with us, and all of you for coming together around this critical issue. Thank you, one and all.